Once upon a time, in a faraway land, I woke up and realized I am going to be a dentist. Said like no one ever. These are the real stories, not fairy tales, as we go behind the smiles. This is a podcast where we interview and chat with some of the biggest leaders in dentistry, learn their stories, and share their motivation with your host, Dr. Gina Dorfman. Today's podcast is brought to you by Yappy, an automated paperless software for dentists and their teams. Learn more at yappyapp.com. Welcome back. You're listening to part two. Let me ask you a question. Pareto Principle um, says that um, um, 80% of our results comes from 20% of our effort. So if we were to look at you know, 20% of the numbers or, or pick one or two or three numbers that are really, really key, what would it be? What would big, give us the most for the practice? Yeah, so <laughs> I would say, you know, the leading indicators are the the biggest. Um, and for that, reappointment rate would be the biggest, uh, one of the biggest ones, just making sure that all of your patients of record are scheduled. So that one's huge. Um, the next one would probably be days to next new patient. Um, judging by how um, valuable a new patient is, that is one of the biggest ones. Um, we know that uh, an emergency new patient is worth about, on average, well, almost twice as much sometimes as a regular new patient. Um, an emergency new patient will typically generate like $900 to $1,200 in revenue in the first uh, six months of a, of a patient's life with your practice. Um, whereas on average, a regular, just I want to get in for my cleaning and become a patient of your practice, that's usually like $600 or $550 or something. Um, and so I've, I've looked at that data across a couple hundred practices to, to come up with those numbers. And so getting those new patients in, and how fast you can get them in so that they actually come in uh, is really important. And so that's kind of a mixture of the days to next new patient in hygiene and, and the days to next rock. So um, getting patients in the door. Um, and then, you know, some of the, um, you know, getting reviews is also, I mean, we see Google really um, puts a ton of value in how many four or five star reviews you have. So, um, your average uh, review rating score is really important. Getting patients to do that is is extremely important. So whether you send an email or whether you ask verbally, you got to do that. Um, and then I would say, man, for the leading indicator, I think those if if you had those four, that would be pretty darn good because um, you want to get patients on the books and keep them on the books, no matter no matter anything else and you know, treat them well. So no matter anything else in your practice, if you do those four things, um, that would be pretty powerful. Excellent. I'm going to throw in one more. And I'm, I, 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 uh, I find that, you know, we do a lot of marketing, we get the reviews, we, the patient calls, and then we don't pick up the phone. Right. Oh. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot of unanswered phone calls. <laughs> do you, do you so. track your, your calls? Yeah, we do. So across all of our locations, we started tracking them a year or two ago. And then uh, we started having an, a network of, if I knew on a certain day of the week that one office was slower, I would focus those, I would have a 
quicker rollover to another office. Um, and so we had a system where different days of the week, I could roll it over into different offices, depending on whether an office was closed or not. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we've spent a lot of time and energy on it. Um, we've gotten all the way down to, I think we only miss like 12 to 15% of our calls, but that's, that's still not great. I mean, that's, that's but an average office misses about 40%. 40%. Of yeah. That's, that's so, boggling. And I'm, I wasn't, and I'm still not totally ready to buy another uh, employee to sit and answer the phones or probably two employees. Um, I could probably get down to 0% there, but um, at the same point, you know, web scheduling is really helpful. So hopefully web scheduling has reduced the amount of call volume. Um, just knowing when calls come in. So most voiceover IP softwares will measure uh, call volume for time of the day and the office and everything. And then you can record them too. And so you get a lot of data, um, but hopefully, hopefully, yeah, you're, you're not missing too many phone calls. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk about uh, treatment plan acceptance because I know this is one of the uh, KPIs that you're looking at. And it's a yeah. tricky one because, first of all, how do we measure it? Like, what's the formula? Yeah. And I know, you know, I use Dentrix. It can spit out some sort of a report, but I don't even know how they measure it. And the yeah. craziest thing is that I've heard, you know, when I talk to dentists and, and they say, well, my treatment plan acceptance, like everyone accepts my treatment. They're like, I'm at a hundred percent, I'm 75%, you know, but I heard Howard Ferran say that uh, out of uh, every uh, three fillings that we recommend, only one gets done. Like 33% yeah. is the average. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about this. Like how do we, so, how do we track it? How do we measure it? What, what do we change? Yeah. So there's two different philosophies on that. You know, um, it, you're right though. We have a horrible, as a, as an entire field, we have a horrible a success with treatment planning. Um, we tell people that they have cavities, but we don't either show them pictures or we don't, we basically say something's wrong in your head. We need to fix it. Give me $200. And so that <laughs> often doesn't lead to much uh, success. And so, um, yeah, you, typically it's pretty bad. So when we, uh, when we uh, propose a treatment plan to a patient, there's two ways to measure it. Um, one is the uh, just a numerical, did they either do the treatment or not? And so, or do any treatment or not? And so if we recommend a full mouth veneer case and it's $10,000, um, well, you know, did they accept the entire treatment plan? Yes or no. And that's either yeah, that gets marked as a yes, a hundred percent or no. Um, whereas, or you could look at as by dollar amount. Well, you propose 10,000 treatment. Well, they only wanted six veneers. So we'll only do 6,000. So then you start to measure that by 60%. Um, for me, I think it's, it's worthwhile. Uh, I mean, I, I see the value in both sides of it. Uh, but for me, I look at it more from a, did they do any treatment? So did they at least execute one um, procedure out of the bunch of procedures that you recommended. Um, by dollar amount is also very, very telling. Uh, but at a certain point, if you start measuring too many numbers, they all become meaningless. Right. So, um, so yeah, treatment acceptance, but you know, as a profession, we got to do a better job at that. Um, and you know, I've, uh, I've gone through Dr. Phelps's course, uh, a few months back 
Um, he talks about a lot of things, um, which is very instructive. The, you know, I think the biggest thing that I've seen that's in increased case acceptance is either being their doctor for 30 years, that <laughs> has a pretty good uh, track record. Some of my doctors who have been with their patients a long time, <clears throat> you know, they say jump and the patients say how high. So they have a very high case acceptance rate, but even very high is still like 92%. And I've never seen anything over that. You know, nobody, nobody bats a thousand. Uh, nobody can just do that a hundred percent. But 92% is pretty darn high. Um, whereas most new doctors and most other doctors, um, it's just low. It's probably 40% um, or less. Um, but the things we can do to improve that would be uh, take more pictures to like show them actually what is going on um, and then spend more time and explain uh, the clinical side to the patient and then also build like a relationship with the patient, uh, being able to connect with them on a personal level so that they feel comfortable enough with you and what you're telling them that they'll uh, trust what you say. Absolutely. We like to do business with people we like and trust and, and yeah. establishing that connection is very important. But I was also thinking the other day, uh, I was actually talking to my team yesterday that when we present treatment, a lot of times, and how do we, an average dentist, how do we present treatment? We walk in, we say, you need a crown on this tooth. And, uh, and, and a patient usually says, well, can't you just fill it? Right. And then we usually respond by giving a very complex technical explanation of why a filling won't work. And we don't really know why the patient is asking that question. I mean, it, you know, for me, I'm a very uh, cosmetically, aesthetically oriented person. I'd be worried that maybe a crown is not going to look good or maybe like, you know, crowns are for old people. Like why, you know, I'm, I'm too young to get a crown. And yeah. so, you know, without finding out what the patient's reservation is, we kind of give them the technical answer. So now we confuse them even more. They don't understand all, yeah. all the stuff that we understand. And then we present the money and that's the only thing that they should really understand. They understand those numbers. They use yeah. money every day. That's clear to them. And that's where yeah. we lose a lot of them. And, and I really appreciate what you just said because you're that, you know, numbers guy. And yet you said we got to create a connection. We got to yeah. create a connection. Well, yeah, sometimes they're, yeah, you got to talk to them and it takes more time. Unfortunately, some of us are, are very driven by speed and, you know, we have two or three hygiene checks. We got to go get them done. Um, but unless we actually sit there and spend the time, sometimes the patients will feel comfortable asking us that question and they'll give the typical, Oh, I got to check with my wife or, um, I don't have time today. I'll call back and schedule. Um, when they really, it was a concern that you didn't address that needs to be discussed, but it takes that, um, that connection with that person. Yeah. Like what you said, we like, we like people who are like us. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's what's going to create those connections so that they stay patients and trust what you say. Absolutely. And I feel like we, you know, a lot of dentists want to have more new patients. We feel like we're going to solve all the problems with new patients, but we're losing, we're yeah. turning through them. We're on that new patient yeah. treadmill and the patients are leaving and then we got to get new patients without yeah. establishing that connection. Because when they leave and they say, I got to talk to my wife, what they're really saying is, I don't understand, I don't trust you, or I'm confused, right? Yeah. 
Very true. Or, yeah. <laughs> or it costs too much and you didn't give me the option that I can afford. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very true. Let's talk about overhead. What uh, kind of overhead should we strive for? Well, so, uh, you know, usually in, I, I help Dr. Mark Costas with his coaching group, um, the Dental Success Institute. And so we kind of grade it by um, a few different levels. The first level is 60% overhead. Um, and that's without counting doctor pay. So we always, we always kind of say that you should, the doctor, whether you're the practice owner or an associate or something, you know, should take about 30% of your, um, collections. Mm -hmm. And so of all the money that comes in, 30% goes to the doctor to pay them for doing the work. So, um, so 30% is off the table already, but the other is the 60%. So 60% um, baseline is overhead. So then you pay your doctor 30 and then there's 10% profit left over for the owner of the practice. So if you're the single doc in a practice, that's 30% plus your 10% as the owner. Um, so you should be taking home 40%. And all of your other costs are the 60%. So 60% is usually what we call white belt status. Um, and that's pretty good. And sometimes we see people walk in the door at 75 or 80%. And so they're really, you're collecting $100,000 this month and you're only taking home 20,000. Now 20,000 is still really good, you know, take home uh, every month. Usually though, we're seeing people who are at like 40 to $50,000 a month and they're only taking home like 8,000. Well, for some of our new grads out there, 8,000 is like their student loan payment. So they can't, (laughs) they can't live. Um, And so, yeah, so usually uh, our first goal is to get people to 60% so that they're actually taking home 40%, um, taking home 30% as the doctor, 10%. Um, And then, so that's white belt status. Then uh, if people get to that level, then usually we work on honing in and getting some systems tighter. And then we try to get them down to 55%. Um, and that would be what we consider blue belt status. And the 55% um, isn't too hard. I mean, even 60% isn't too hard to get to as long as you know how to get there. Uh, some, if we were never taught how to get to 60%, then it's really difficult to even see how that happens, but it's not too bad to six, to get to 60 55 isn't still too bad. Um, that's blue belt status. Um, we have quite a few practices though that are already down to 50 or below 50% or below. So, um, every meeting and I have one coming up tomorrow down in Scottsdale. Um, we kind of go over, uh, you know, the best numbers in our group. Um, and usually the, like for a multi-month picture, uh, we've seen as low as like 44 or 43%, I think wow. in overhead, which is just crazy. Incredible. Um, so that, that means the dentist owner is taking home like 57%, um, which is just awesome. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine taking home 50, if you were taking home uh, $57,000 a month, like that would be pretty good. I'd, I'd take that. So um, yeah, so that's kind of what we do with the overhead. Um, you know, a lot of dentists out there, I'm thinking through the numbers of the, uh, the folks that I've purchased going back through their books of what they took home before I bought them. Um, and a lot of, a lot of folks are hovering around that 75% overhead level, um, maybe 72 to 75. And so they're taking home 
25%, which is good. Um, but, and they, they think it's good because they have never known any different, but when you actually look at, um, what is possible, if you just kind of control your costs, look at where all your money is going, uh, it's not too bad to get down to, you know, you've taken home, yeah, 25%. Well, let's, let's almost double that and let's take home 40%. Um, that's a huge increase. And, you know, in my practices, when I've done that, uh, you know, I actually feel like we're increasing quality of care, um, and just doing things better, more efficiently. Um, and people are kind of happy in their jobs because they know that, uh, there's a system to the madness. So not that, not that doing that stuff is all madness, but it's, uh, you know, you just got to be efficient and you got to be, um, mindful of you know the supplies you're using and the systems you're using very very cool um and what i heard you say is that we're not necessarily going to be buying cheap supplies that's not you know we're not necessarily oh, yeah. cutting costs we're just getting more efficient we're utilizing good systems we're not being wasteful yeah. with our time um i was impressed with some of the numbers that uh, you know of course um, I highly recommend that anyone listening to this goes out and gets your book. It's on Amazon. You don't have to go out. You can do it while listening to this podcast. Um, but you, you, I mean, some of the numbers that you give are pretty impressive and, and it kind of motivated me to go back and start looking at my own numbers because, you know, I've gotten complacent. And, and I think that's part of what happens with, with dentists is we get complacent because our profit margins are pretty healthy, right? So it's, you know, we're okay with 25%, we're okay with 30%. But when you start, when I'm looking at your numbers, I'm, I'm thinking, dang, you know, this is my, my kid's college fund. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That is just going well, out, of, out of the door. And it's crazy. We've had, uh, you know, some of the folks that have joined the consultancy, they already have big clinics. They have very profitable clinics. Um, but I'm thinking back to the last meeting we had someone that does, um, I think, I think it's about $20 million in revenue, um, across their clinics and many, many millions. Um, but they were overspending on supplies. Um, their supply cost was closer to, I think seven and a half or 8% when, um, really it should be closer to four or five. Now we kind of say 5%. Um, uh, that's what Jake Conway, our, our numbers guy in the consultant, uh, in the coaching group, uh, kind of says 5%. Um, for me, I, I like to hold people to 4%. And so I gave this, uh, this group a goal of 4% and the systems to get it, get it done, which isn't that bad. Um, and basically sometimes it's just negotiating with these vendors a little bit more. Um, it's, it's kind of, sometimes you have to threaten to break up with them before they say, Oh, they, they run back to you and they say, okay, well, we'll give you better pricing. Um, and so basically drop it from about 8% to 4%. Um, and we have some people that are lower than four and that's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to get down to like three and a half or three, but, um, you know, but 4% isn't that bad. And it, so it saved this guy, uh, or this group, I guess, um, just a ton of money. It was, it's unbelievable. It's like many hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's ridiculous right there. I mean, so when you, it's the power of just a percent, one or 2% here, there. Um, now if you were in the restaurant business, like where I started, 
like you'd be out of business if you were overspending on your food cost or if you're, you know, if you were packing nine ounces of hamburger rather than eight ounces of hamburger, you know, so, um, you know, but in dental supplies, our margins are so healthy. We just, yeah, it's easy to, um, it's easy to overlook it. Yeah. I, one of my first jobs before uh, going into dentistry was actually managing a restaurant. And I, I don't know how I ended up doing this. I went in for a hostess position and I think the restaurant wasn't doing well. So he fired everyone who knew what they were doing. I was the only one left <laughs> and I ended up managing this place. And, and, and it was, it was you know, it was an, it was a nightmare because, yeah. you know, I, I like measuring alcohol, by tubes, you know, making sure that there's, you know, half an ounce here or there, that's where the, the profit yeah. was, right? Yeah. So, uh, it's yeah, crazy. It, was, it was a very, it's a tough, very, very tough job. And, of course, you know, less than 1% of dentists go into bankruptcy, whereas with restaurants, yeah. most of them, you know, don't stay in business. Yeah. They just closed my favorite one, so I'm kind of bummed out. About no, bummer. Trying to replicate their pasta. <laughs> um, <laughs> or are the numbers different for multiple practices? Than it is um, for like a private practice or maybe an absentee owner practice. Yeah. If you're an absentee owner practice, you probably have to spend a little bit more in management um, in the HR category because you'd have to pay someone that really knows what they're doing. Um, it's more difficult. I mean, you see the, how many managers in like Heartland dental to run those 800 clinics, you have to have a pretty stout, um, organizational pyramid to be able to manage those dentists and, and manage everything. Um, the uh, others, you know, other numbers, you can actually get better cost categories for some um, of those costs as you grow multiple clinics um, until you get to probably six or 10 though. It's, it's not super great. Um, you don't see too many cost savings as you grow from, you know, a lot of guys uh, or a lot of folks out there are looking at buying like a second practice or third. Um, and those costs actually do increase quite a bit. So you're actually, you're shrinking your profit margin on your second and third and fourth practice. Um, but then you start to make it up on your fourth and fifth and sixth. And so um, it's kind of, you have to kind of get through that time and you build a management structure to help you manage, you know, two offices or three offices. Um, you know, and sometimes it makes sense to centralize services. Um, for me, I centralized some services, uh, when I knew it was efficient too. Um, and I, I kind of benchmarked that against outside like, you know, what would, a uh, what would outsourcing all my phone calls cost me? Well, is it cheaper to do it in-house or out-of-house? Uh, I kept it in-house. Um, insurance verification, after looking across the lowest rate I could get with how many thousands of patients, it was like 2.5%. Well, if I just had two and a half employees, I would be at 2.3%. So I said, okay, I'm going to keep it in-house um, and I'm going to centralize it. Um, so some of those, um, you know, you just, it, some, sometimes you just... Uh, make those decisions based on cost. Um, and sometimes you make more money at a certain point though, that doesn't happen. You know, one practice when an owner is on site, usually every day or, or every other day or something, um, systems can, can be good and they can be a little bit more lax, I guess. But when you start having multiple clinics, that's when the headaches start of, uh, you know, that we want to do it differently. And, 
So then you have to kind of have more management structure in place to make sure everyone is doing it the same way, how you want it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different and multiple clinics is definitely not always more money. I, I know lots of people out there that have bought their second, third, fourth, um, and it's not all uh, sunshine and rainbows out there. So uh, <laughs> if anyone's really looking at doing it, they better feel pretty, uh, pretty stout about, you know, working their butt off for a while and making sure the pr- practices are systemized uh, before jumping into that direction. That's excellent advice. Is there a sweet spot with the number of practices? Like I, you kind of said it starts getting better at the fifth. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it got really easy when I was probably doing my fifth and sixth once. I mean, yeah, then I had enough, uh, management structure in place that, um, I don't really have to think about too much. Um, you know, I come in and I, I'm kind of the decider, uh, in, in, for some of those things, but, um, all other things I would hire and I'm, I'm much more willing to hire, um, and pay another, uh, high priced management position to help take headaches off my plate. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that's kind of important to do. Um, but granted, that's just my personality. I want, I want to have time with my kids and I want to have free time. Um, and so, and that's something that some people don't want to, um, they don't want to hire another position. Um, but, at a certain point though, hiring those positions, even though you see a initial cost outlay, um, you can totally earn back your time and more and they can be better. Um, and there's just a lot of those things. And so at four practices really when you can probably afford that stuff, uh, five and six, it makes it easier and easier to just afford all that. Like, and you know, for me, I had like an internal accountant, I had a full insurance team. Um, you know, I had outside, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just had everything that uh, that made it really easy for me to just have the business systems running uh, and the practices run themselves. That's excellent. How do you hire someone like that? How do you, how do you hire? Because um, I think a lot of dentists have a hard time finding that, you know, real office manager, you know, the administrative position, not just someone who is, you know, filing insurance. Yeah. How do you find someone like that? Oh, I think I, I feel lucky. I think, I don't know <laughs> because, uh, for the most part, I brought them up through my organization. So I found those people that were, that were doing front desk work, um, working in the office, but that were just underutilized or they, they had more capabilities than they were being used for. So, um, once I found those people, then I said, okay, Hey, I'd, I'd like to give you more tasks. I'd like to move you up. I'd like to train you more in a management mindset. Um, and when people are growing, if it's a slow growth, they don't even realize that they're getting, you know, groomed for a bigger position. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, you're going to oversee that office, but, or you're going to help coach that office at first. And then, Oh, actually you're going to oversee that office. Oh, and then actually you're managing three offices. Um, and then, Oh, I'm going to teach you a little bit about insurance and then, Oh, okay. You're going to take over my insurance division. Um, and so, uh, I've been lucky that way to groom internal people for most of it. Um, some of them are skill poach, like skill positions where you have to poach somebody mm-hmm. like the, uh, the accountant I had to hire that I had to poach that person, um, marketing I had to poach. Um, 
but man, sometimes we just get lucky. Uh, I don't, I don't feel like I necessarily have all that much wisdom in that respect other than, um, when actually I go back to when I was in the restaurant business, all of our managers were uh, servers at some point. And so it was basically that you do a good enough job serving for a long time. You're the next person that gets moved up to either be the bartender or the bar manager or the restaurant manager. Um, and so people that know the smaller systems that can, that have the capability to rise up is, is who I uh, usually do uh, for office managers. This is excellent. I think you should stop saying that you're lucky because, you know, I, I used to say that I say this all the time and it's like, it's like fake modesty because it's not, you know, you make your own luck, right? I mean, we're all yeah. lucky. We live in this land of opportunity and, and, you know, we have yeah. lucky. I have great weather most of the year, you know, here in California, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, a thing of two that's, that's not really pure luck. Um, yeah. I want to talk about associates because you have a, um, a course on uh, DSN on dental success network. Yeah. Um, about hiring associates. And, and I know this is another area that many dentists have trouble with. Um, so yeah. we don't want to give away your course. You know, they have to be, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they have to be uh, on DSN. It's a paid course, but um, just give me a few pointers, hiring associates. How do you, uh, you know, where do you find them? How do you uh, yeah. interview them? How do you onboard them? And then how do you ensure that everyone is, um, you know, pretty much working cohesively together. Yeah. So, you know, finding them, uh, that starts with the ad. You know, that's the biggest thing is um, putting the ad in the right spots and writing a good ad. So uh, an ad or a, you know, a job posting that focuses on your culture as a company um, and your core values um, and then hiring on those core values. So um, if your core you know, if your core values is like hard work and dedication, then your ad needs to really speak to that. It's like, Hey, do you want to work your butt off? Do you want to, um, feel good about the place you work? Um, yeah. And I kind of go back to like when Shackleton crossed the, uh, I think it was the South pole or the Arctic circle or something, you know, his ad, his job ad said, you know, uh, safety, not guaranteed. You might die. Um, and he got a bunch of people and they were all cool with that. Um, and it was a very difficult expedition, but that's the kind of same philosophy we need to take with our ads is basically we need to say what our core values are um, and looking in the right spot. I would say when I've coached some of our clients on choosing between different associates, I think the biggest thing is uh, character and personability. So like, how do they, are, are they able to get like an instant connection with you being your the interviewer and potential boss? Um, and that it, how will that relate to when they talk to patients? You know, if they're condescending to you or if they kind of come off a little weird, they will probably definitely come off that way to patients and they're not going to be a successful associate. So finding people who are just good people um, and good uh, with, you know, speaking uh, and just kind, you know, personality that's basically that's that's usually my number one thing um but then they have to match your core values they could be a great person but if they don't match the kind of clinic or the core values that you have they might not be a good fit so there's that term number two um 
onboarding is usually it's a like 90 day process. Um, it starts off with a bunch of education, but, um, you know, going through what we expect, uh, but then it's, it's really a 90 day accountability process of, okay, how have you been doing on those things that we talked about day one? Um, you know, all those expectations, um, it might be a little bit difficult to talk about at first. Um, but then once you start actually addressing them, uh, it gets better and better. Um, and then it gets easier to do, uh, if you don't address it and they fail, the only person who you have to blame is yourself. So, so usually the onboarding process, uh, can be a big document. Um, you basically go through your entire practice and say, okay, this is how we do things. No, uh, there's usually like a playbook, like a, an operations manual of how the practice runs. But from a different aspect, there should also be a playbook of how the doctor treatment plans. Um, and as the owner doctor, you're the clinical uh, manager, the clinical president. And so you set what clinical limits there are in your company. Um, and so the associate doctors should follow those um, and they should treatment plan just like how you do. Um, so, um, writing all those things out, you know, some of my clients have taken that very, very literally, and they've written out like an 80 page document of this is how these are pictures. This is how I would treatment plan this scenario, this scenario, um, all that stuff. Um, and then it's really just important after they're onboarded, you know, the first 90 days is really the trial period, but then, um, after you're onboarded, then it's just, uh, making sure that people, uh, keep up with their accountabilities every month or every other month, um, have a sit down meeting with them for an hour or two and just see how things are going, see how, um, are they still keeping up with how you should treat the plan? Are they still doing all the things that they should be doing every day? And yeah, that's kind of the, the quick overview of how an associate should be onboarded. This is excellent. I, and you know, I have one of those playbooks. I realized I, I hired my first associate in 2003 and it was, you know, because I worked full time right next to her, I found that over time, she even sounded like me, um, oh, yeah. like the way that she spoke to patients, the things that she said. And I realized that th- this is really, um, it's very important to have that, um, uh, you know, sameness because the patients don't feel it. If I'm not in the office and um, it was, you know, I had, uh, she was amazing, Dr. Jamie Coyan and, and, and Jamie would walk in into the room. She looked different, but she sounded the same. She did the same thing. She treated and planned the same. And yeah. for patients, it was, it was a very easy transition. And of course, for me, it was an easy transition because I trusted her to take good care of my patients the way that I would. And so eventually I ended up writing this playbook, mine is 35 pages, but it's literally, (laughs) this is how we do things. And when I hire an associate, I give it to them and I say, look, you're going to be, you know, I want you to have your autonomy on how you practice, but this is how I do it. And don't accept the position if you're not agreeing with any of this. And and I think it's excellent. I think uh, somebody shared their playbook on uh, DSN on Dental Success Network. It was a Jason Tenorio. Did you share yours? I um, uh, might have been Jason. Yeah. Probably Jason. And so you guys, I mean, and, so, yeah. and Jason, you what? share so much stuff there. I mean, this is so valuable. Every post, every you know, every day there's there's like gold there, pure gold, and and I, and I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks. I, DSN is an awesome platform to be able to share. And yeah, all these guys that are on there are just uh, amazing. I mean, so many people are so successful and uh, it's a good support group too, because if you want to, if you're uh, at a lower production level or your business isn't uh, making you as happy as you want to be, I mean, I, I uh, you know, in my current title as helping uh, day-to-day operations in DSN, you know, I uh, ran a survey the other day and the thing that people liked most about it was the sense of um, community that you get with the other members inside DSN. Uh, the, the sense of just camaraderie and sharing and everybody wanting everyone else to do well. Um, you know, there was one of our uh, members had a clinic burned down a couple months ago and, and they said that uh, they wouldn't have gotten through it without the support of all the other members and stuff. So uh, it's just amazing to, uh, to be working, you know, to try to support each other rather than compete against each other. So it really is a wonderful place. And, you know, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I'm in a lot of different uh, social, you know, dental social media places. And, uh, you know, partly because of my software, I have to stay connected with our customers that are everywhere. But, um, But really, what makes DSN special is that sense of community because you get, first of all, you get very, there are very, very, very smart people on uh, on DSN. And you get, yeah. the information you get on DSN is completely different quality of information. Um, you know, there's so much thought and experience, um, but also there's this, you know, sense of, you know, well-being. Um, yeah. and, and treating each other well. And that's completely different because a lot of groups get very snarky, right? There's yeah. a lot of, oh, yeah. you know, there are trolls out there. And because DSN is, you know, members only, and it's, yeah. it's uh, you, you pay to play, the yeah. people there are really to give and to, you know, participate in a, in a community way, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, and I, I love, you know, I didn't realize how smart it is, but there's a room on there called the safe place yes. where you can ask any question, no matter how dumb you think it is. Um, and, you know, and a lot of questions on there, I don't think are that dumb. So I don't know what that <laughs> says about me, but I, you know, a lot of us, we have questions and for a place where we can post it without judgment and without, uh, you know, we, we've all come from different backgrounds and educations and, you know, some of the things we learned are maybe be maybe you know passed down from a previous generation, and maybe you know like bonding agents or you know can can this instrument do that or you know and we think it's a dumb question, so we're afraid to ask it in a public forum. But on DSN, you know, it's safe. We're we're supportive of each other, and we say, oh, actually, you know, and and we have experts on there that know like a ton about implants or a ton about sleep um you know and so having people like there that are on there to help support us is is pretty cool absolutely absolutely it's a great place to be and uh that's how we met right (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) because i've known about you and and yappy for a while so i'm looking forward (laughs) to testing it out here this uh i think this summer is when i'm gonna implement it so Sounds exciting, uh, but I, yeah. I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and uh, you know, sharing all this information with us. I appreciate everything you share on 
uh, DSN, and uh, I love your book. We're going to put uh, some links in the show notes. Thank you so, so much. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank thanks so for having much. me on. Uh, have a great day.